Melissa. Sarah. What are we reading today? We're reading Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Excellent. Quick question. What brought you to this book? Oh, this book fell into my hands by way of a Christmas gift. I I love Irish fiction. So when this book came out, uh, my husband gave it to me for Christmas. But I don't know about you. Like if I open up a Christmas book on December 25th, I'm not reading that. Like I'm over sort of the holly jolly feels. I'm ready to like move on. Then it will tell the following year that I actually read it. And from the minute I closed that book, I was like, I will read this every Christmas from here on out. Clearly, I think I, I know where this discussion is going to go in terms of uh, could read, should read, must read. But I look forward to having, you know, kind of a more in-depth discussion about, you know, what this book entails and how it makes you feel and what your thoughts are about it. But um, what do you do? to kind of get into the holiday spirit and where are you at on a scale of one to 10 for uh, feeling holly jolly this year? <laughs> Honestly, I'm bursting. I'm bursting with the holiday spirit already. I, because I kind of love the earliest days of, of the Christmas preparation, because mm -hmm. I feel like that's the time when I'm like, everything is possible, right? I'm still picturing like the best versions of myself that a little extra razzle dazzle on her Christmas wrapping, trying some of the trendy bakes I'm seeing, you know, all of that is still a possibility when we have a lot of time. But then like right around the corner is like the, the dread and despair, like the desperation of like, you know, <laughs> I forgot to get that in the mail on time and that present's not going to arrive and I didn't do any baking, you know, so I'm, I'm definitely at like peak festive holly jolly right now. And in another week or so, I think I'll, no, I guess I'm not at peak. Next week I'll be at peak because then I think other people will have caught up to me <laughs> and other people will be like kind of a little bit more um, in the mood, which will, which will just suit me just fine. Oh, that's really nice. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past, um, but, you know, the fact that Halloween ends where you are in Canada and it's wide open. I feel like Christmas can a season can officially kind of begin on November 1st. And is it that way for you? I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in that I wait till November 12th because November 11th is Remembrance Day. Right. And so like that was always huge in our house. And it did feel like a bit disrespectful to like kind of mm -hmm. shift the switch to like before we had kind of like gotten through that period of remembrance. Um, but we do, we get a long weekend for Remembrance Day in the province where I live. So that means that we eat, we have a Monday off typically. Um, well, no, I shouldn't, I guess it depends on when Remembrance Day falls, but in any yes. case, it's an extra day that we have. And it usually means that I'm putting up my tree on that day. So That's it's, I'm earlier than most, but I do wait until after November 11th. But in your case, you're, it's you're different. Waiting. Yeah. It's really interesting because I, and I've thought about this. Here, it's kind of a unofficial rule and it shifts a little every year, but it's kind of, I don't know, a little tacky maybe to put up your Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving has passed. But of course, Thanksgiving is the last Thursday of the month. 
So we're talking like it's like just sometimes like December is days away and people have yet to put up their trees. And that only gives you really a month, which is a really short period of time to, for one, uh, get all your Christmas shopping done and all the preparation for the big day. But um, also it just, it feels like, I don't know, like you're a little short changed. Um, you know, the time that you get to feel that kind of sometimes magical feeling of Christmas. So that's really interesting about the, you know, Remembrance Day and how that is kind of the, that's the threshold to the holiday season where here it's really Thanksgiving. And I, I have had thoughts of like, oh, I feel like in Canada, they got it right. You know, <laughs> they, 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 they're giving themselves a lot of time to be able to like really be into the season. So, and I think like some people, they do kind of say like, it's not even December, like as if you have to turn the calendar for it to be like officially like appropriate to put up Christmas decorations. And, and I say the same thing that you were saying is like, there's worse things we could want to do more of every year, you know, like to want to extend feelings of goodwill and kindness and, you know, like spending time with friends and family. Like that's not the worst thing we could want to tack a couple of extra weeks onto, but who am Very I? True. Well, um, with that, I want to hear more about small things like these. So to start, uh, what's this book about? Can you give me like a little description? Absolutely. Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These is a Booker Prize nominee firmly set in the Ireland of 1985. The story, told from the perspective of Bill Furlong, is sometimes nestled sweetly in the domestic spaces of his current and childhood homes. Furlong was raised by a single mother who became pregnant while working as a domestic. Her employer allowed her to stay on and displayed a great deal of kindness to Furlong and his mother. Although we are led to believe that he was safe and well cared for throughout his childhood, the impact of being raised without a father was still very significant. And I should actually add that upon a bit of a closer read last night in anticipation of this conversation, I actually remembered that, um, or I, I was actually reminded through the rereading, that his mother actually dies when he's 12. So he's effectively orphaned before he even hits adolescence. Um, and Mrs. Wilson, that's his mother's employer, she does continue to display kindness to him um, as he moves into adulthood, at least. But we do spend more time with him as an adult. He's the father of five girls, and I think it's significant that it's five girls um, that he is a father to in a calm, typical family. His days are heavy with work. His nights are heavy with worry. Beyond the stories of these domestic spaces, though, this book powerfully challenges the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church and forces us to subsequently question the contradictions of our own behaviors and beliefs. Keegan masterfully illustrates how Furlong manages the lasting effects of his unconventional upbringing and his fears of inadequacy as a parent, in part by setting the book during the Christmas season. Her uncanny ability to replicate familiar experiences and environments works so well at Christmas time um, because it is a period in my experience that's really, it's imbued, I think, with equal parts nostalgia, uneasiness, and optimism. And in fact, the book itself is a small thing. In a mere 114 pages, small things like these warms the heart, inspires sympathy, and acts as a tribute to the women and children whose lives were devastated by the Catholic Church through the Magdalene Laundries. 
how familiar with you or were you with the Magdalene laundries and that kind of system that was in place? I was a bit familiar actually because I had taken a course in undergrad that um, we watched the Magdalene sisters um, and I really liked the film as troubling as it was and is. And then, I, so I rewatched that movie a few years later as well. I mean, that was still like probably 15 years ago that I rewatched it. But also, um, someone I work with, um, Ree Kroll, um, she put out a book a couple years ago called Shaped by Silence. Um, and it's also um, like it, it, it's a, a book about the Magdalene Laundries and other similar type. Catholic church run institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I was a bit aware of that, but so I was really appreciative, like of the care and respect that she placed on, on that part of, of Irish history. Mm. Yeah. A dark spot um, in Irish history for sure. Furlong himself wasn't really in that system because he ended up staying with his mother via her employer. Right. Yeah. And that's a pretty, yeah, that I guess, but based on the summary that I gave the, like the implication would be that he actually was, you know, affected by the, the laundries, but in fact, it's as an adult that the, these um, laundries factor into his experience. So as a profession, he delivers fuel of various sorts to like homes, as well as to like, in this case, he, he delivers it to a, a convent. And upon one of his Christmas time deliveries, it becomes very apparent that something is not right. I've reflected on this a bit. Like, it seems as though the rest of the community was very aware that this was going on and that he was sort of naive, maybe, like that this was actually happening. And I don't know if this is maybe like repression, given what his upbringing was or something, but he seems sort of like surprised when he, he actually encounters uh, a woman who's been locked up in a shed. Um, presumably as some kind of punishment. Um, and she makes it clear that she's been separated from her baby and, and she's asking him for help, um, which, you know, becomes sort of the main part of the second half of the book. So all of his experiences with this girl and his, and, and with the convent itself, because he comes to interact with, um, I think it's Mother Superior. I'm not really like familiar with like the hierarchy of the Catholic <laughs> yeah. Church. I'm going to call her Mother Superior, the um, the Mama Mama Hen of the 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 convent. Um, yeah, like he he really questions how his life would have been different if his mother had been, you know, essentially incarcerated in a place like this. Right. And so does the does the book go back and forth in like pat like chapters in the past, chapters in the present, or is it kind of divided between like first half, second half, or is it kind of like woven throughout the story? It's woven throughout and it's always him reflecting. Mm. So it's reported from his current self. It's never told through like his childhood self, which again, like works so well with this Christmas time context for me too, right? Because who among us is not nostalgic at this time? And he is so deeply affected and hurt and and damaged, I think, from his his absentee father. Yeah. Um, and I think those sorts of things really come to a head at Christmas time. like like many children, I'm sure, who grow up without a parent in their childhood, he asks Santa Claus for him to come at Christmas. And of course he doesn't, right? So that massive disappointment just being kind of 
brought on again by another person letting you down, another man letting you down for that mm -hmm. matter. So I think like it's it's so Christmassy, like in the sense of it's a couple weeks before Christmas and his wife and children are preparing the um the Christmas cake and they're writing their letters to Santa. And so he's just really taking in their very classic quintessential childhood Christmas and then contrasting it with his his own. Um, yeah, so he's he's reflecting on it as an adult, but we get a really good picture of it, I feel like, um, of what his childhood was like. And how old are his daughters? And I, you said that him having the, uh, you said five daughters, mm -hmm. um, that that really plays a big role. And is it because of his maybe fears about what will happen to them? as women in in this kind of country and culture where there's a lot of shame um around probably sex and certainly you know you know pregnancy outside of a marriage that kind of thing yeah and i think there's also what's happening is a bit of a disagreement between he and his wife about where their efforts should lie in terms of helping other people. Mm -hmm. And they have these five girls who, you know, we might read that as sort of these, you know, it's 1985 too, right? In a very okay. like economically depressed Ireland. So they're trying to figure out how are we gonna set these girls up either through education or whatever other social institutions they may have to enter. I'm sort of trying to avoid saying marriage, <laughs> but, and I mean, <laughs> There's five of them. They're not all going to be doctors, right? So like, how are we going to make sure that they're set up? And he's always trying to be helping. He's always trying to help everyone else. And she's always trying to rein him in and saying, let's just look after our own. And actually, I might just like kind of pull a passage here if that's okay. Because it also, this is the, the moment in the book where she uses the title, small things like these. So they've they've just had like a bit of an argument right so they're not fighting but they're bickering and a lot of their interactions are a little bit like not i would call them tense right because they do i think have fundamentally very different values um but she's kind of quizzing him on who he's helped that day because although they're not like destitute they're also not affluent so and especially around the holidays i think a lot of us who aren't destitute and who aren't affluent may be kind of like you know, counting pennies a little bit more than we normally are. And I think that's what she's doing, right? She's very pragmatic. So, you know, she's kind of saying like, oh, and I bet you gave some money to such so-and-so's kid, but like their, their father is a drunk. So like, I don't know why you're helping these people. And he's like, well, it's not the kid's fault that his dad's a drunk. Like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to help these people, but you know, she, they just kind of agree to disagree. And that's kind of the end of the, the disagreement. So it says some nights furlong lay there with Eileen going over small things like these. Other times, after a day of heavy lifting or being delayed by a puncture and getting soaked out on the road, he'd come home and eat his fill and fall into bed early, then wake in the night, sensing Eileen heavy in sleep at his side, and there he'd lie with his mind going round in circles, agitating, before finally he'd have to go down and put the kettle on for tea. He'd stand at the window then with the cup in his hand, looking down at the streets and what he could see of the river at the little bits and pieces of goings on, stray dogs out foraging for scraps in the bins, chipper bags and empty cans being rolled and blown roughly about by the driving wind and rain, stragglers from the pub stumbling home. Sometimes these stumbling men sang a little. Other times, Furlong would hear a sharp, hot whistle and laughter, which made him tense. He imagined his girls getting big and growing up going out into that world of men 
Already he'd seen men's eyes following his girls, but some part of his mind was often tense. He could not say why. And I just feel like that's his fear about being an adequate parent, his fear about the future for his girls, his inability to ever feel peace, which I think, you know, stems from his childhood. And I mean, I just totally connected with this you know, he just lays in bed and worries and worries and worries until he just gets out of bed and just makes a cup of tea, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, and I think to go back to your question about the five daughters, it's what you're saying. He's worried about what this world will be like for them. And he's seen his mother's experience, which turned out okay, but could have gone the other way. But I think he also recognizes that he still is, he was still damaged by what happened uh, in her life as well. Yeah, I would imagine this feeling of vulnerability, like that his daughters are vulnerable just based on being women in this time. And and his mother was vulnerable and she happened to be lucky, I would imagine, but still vulnerable. And that he himself was vulnerable, I would imagine, as a child because, and I don't know if the book goes into it, but I would imagine a feeling of you know, having to kind of take someone's charity all the time, Mm. relying on other people and their generosity to be able to just live your life and not feel that sense of stability that comes from being in a, in a stable home with potentially two parents or at least parents who can really take care of themselves. So that's so interesting. Yeah. And that's making me think of, of a few moments in the book and I hadn't thought of it from that perspective, but I don't know that he necessarily feels like a debt he needs to repay, but he also he also is more quick to to help others. Um, and that is where his disagreements come from with his wife. Right. And so I guess, yeah, her upbringing as a sort of more typical one will she didn't have that dependency. And so she doesn't have that same reaction. Yeah. To just to helping others. That's a good point. Mm. Now, you mentioned that with the Christmas season, like being so pronounced in this story and all the things that kind of go along with Christmas, do you think this book could have been set at a different time of year and that it would have packed the same kind of punch? No, I don't think so. And I think that's partly why it's only 114 pages, right? Because a little bit of the work is done for her um, by putting it in that time. And also presuming that her readers are reading it at Christmas time. So they're kind of coming to it with a particular headspace. But I think it allows her to make commentary on the economy, mm-hmm. um, commentary on gift giving and generosity, and sort of that the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church that she really wants to highlight, which is we say we're so great and we're so wonderful and love thy neighbor and everything. Oh, unless you make a mistake, in which case we will, we will profit off of you regardless of how that impacts you. So that hypocrisy sort of funnels down into, we do something so similar when we just sing songs about goodwill and kindness and we look after ourselves first, right? We we make sure that our Christmas tree is full, our table is full first. I'm not saying that uniformly, but many of us do, right? So that that goes so well in the Christmas time, but also 
the Christmas story is the beginning of Christianity too, right? So it's sort of like, this is where it all begins and it puts itself in, in that, in conversation with the Christmas story too. So I think it, it really has to be at Christmas um, for it to have the same punch, the same impact. And if it wasn't, it would just be a different story. It'd be a different book, I think. And I also think during the Christmas season, I, like you said, it's, it's good to be reminded of, you know, why we're celebrating, what we're celebrating and how we're celebrating and maybe kind of shining a little bit of a spotlight on that and having reminders about like, okay, let's, let's, let's focus on what really matters and what can we do to make sure that it's not just about, you know, material objects. And also even just kind of the, the original Christmas story is a woman and child, you know, at, at her most kind of vulnerable and kind of the, the kindness of strangers, you know? Absolutely. Right. Which I mean, parallels that story of, of Furlong and his mom too. Right. So, you know, just sort of that, that maybe misfortune, how that can kind of translate or transfer into something really beautiful too. Like he is a really, he's a really kind man. He's a, he's a lovely person. I think I enjoyed, I think part of the the rereading of it, it was almost like visiting again with like an old friend in the way that it's like, he's familiar to me, but he's changed, right? I'm coming to it a year later. I'm a slightly different person. So there was new things that I found in this book this year than I did last year as well. To go back to your point too, about, you know, the, the actions that make Christmas what it is. I think that's also kind of you know, small things like these, it is the small things as well. And she's trying to highlight that. Um, I kind of, I can pull another little passage here too, that I think it, it hits the, the Christmas piece nicely, but it also reiterates kind of his anxieties too. So like I said, he delivers uh, fuel for a living and now he's out in a rural part of Ireland. Um, and he's seeing a, a fair amount of poverty on his travels. Um, and he comes upon one of the house houses where he's going to make a delivery and there's kids outside playing and the girl comes up to him and hands him a Christmas card. And she says, we knew you'd come, she said, and save us having to post it. Mammy always said you were a gentleman. People could be good for long reminded himself as he drove back to town. It was a matter of learning how to manage and balance the give and take in a way that let you get on with others as well as your own. But as soon as the thought came to him, he knew the thought itself was privileged and wondered why he hadn't given the sweets and other things he'd been gifted at some of the houses to the less well-off he had met in others. Always Christmas brought out the best and the worst in people. Mm. It's like, it's, and to me, the arc of like that one section is like, oh, wow, a cute little girl at Christmas. Oh, wow. There are good people in the world. Oh, we're too privileged. And this brings out the worst in us. Right. Mm. And it, Honestly, it's not unlike what I was saying earlier, right? Like right now, I feel like I'm peak Christmas because I'm going to be my best self this year. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be shouting at my kids because they're not smiling well enough for our Christmas photo. Right? <laughs> like the best and the worst. Or you're going to be buying that last minute present that you didn't plan on getting and wasn't budgeted for. And you're asked at the checkout counter, do you want to give a dollar? to whatever cause and you're like nope <laughs> or maybe that's just me 
<laughs> yeah, busted. No, yeah. and well, don't even get me started on that. These big companies asking us for a buck when they're gouging us on things. Like, no, thank you. That's why I love self-checkout. I don't have to look <laughs> someone in the eyes when I click on no. <laughs> it's like, wouldn't you like an extra buck from this company that's hiring you, huh? I know it's true. <laughs> and never mind the self checkout, and they're saving money on right checking yourself out. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think I should. Why don't you pay me the buck that you're not paying someone else? But, uh, but yeah, okay. I this is a beautiful book. Um, and actually, and and I feel a little guilty saying this. I haven't read anything else by Claire Keegan, so I really should check out some more of her stuff because, um, yeah, it's it's lovely. And I listened to an interview with her. Um. And she was just so humble and just, I, I actually was like, oh, I would just have her over for tea any day of the week. Like, you know, she was just really pleasant to listen to. It's really hard for me to not read Irish books um, without using an Irish accent in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that just sets the scene even better. So it sounds like you would have Claire Keegan and Bill Furlong over for uh, a little tea. Mm. And you mentioned that this is going to be uh, an annual read for you. So I guess that leads me to the question, is this book, Small Things Like These, a could read, a should read, or a must read for you? This is a must read for me. It really is. Like Part of it is just because the reading experience was so nice. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I talk about books like, did I walk through them or did I stumble through them? Mm-hmm. And I walked through this book just so peacefully. And it's a, it's a gentle read, if I can put it that way. Like, you know, there's no big bombastic moments. They No, I shouldn't put it that way. They don't feel like bombastic moments. Even though when you truly think about what some of the events that happen, they are quite significant and large, but it, it always just feels like it's just unraveling and it's unraveling really nicely. So for that reason alone, just a pleasant Christmas read, just very superficially, yes, I will come back to it year in, year out. But I do think we need those reminders of how our beliefs and our behaviors contradict each other sometimes. And I think that that happens when you read stories like this. Um, so I, I think I would come back to it for that reason as well. And also, I just, like I said, I do feel like this is a tribute to a group of women and children who were so, so brutally mistreated that we kind of owe it to people to read their stories and reread their stories and keep these stories alive. So I would, I, I would come back to it for that reason too, I think, but it's, it's a must read for me. Well, I love talking with you as always. And uh, I am definitely going to put small things like these by Claire Keegan Booker prize nominee and a must read from you, Melissa on my reading list uh, this Christmas. Amazing. I can't wait to chat with you about it after you read it. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. And I can't wait until our next chat. Absolutely.